Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Thanks for joining us this week. We've got an interesting angle for you today. Today is October 27th. And as we record this, Congress is desperately seeking pay-fors that can raise tax revenue without raising tax rates. Why? Well, that's more or less the charge given by Senator Sinema if Democrats want to secure her vote, an absolutely essential vote for the Build Back Better Act. So while we wait to see if ideas like mark-to-market for the super wealthy or a book-based minimum tax have the votes to move forward, or if other ideas surface that can help fill the revenue hole Democrats are trying to fill, let's discuss another topic today. We've spent the last year or year and a half asking the question, what does the tax world look like if this or that Biden tax proposal or House tax proposal becomes law? But we have spent zero time asking the opposite question. What does the world look like if none of these proposals become law? In other words, what if Congress fails to pass a tax bill entirely? Now, pause for a second. Let me be clear. We are not saying that that's what we think is going to happen or that's what we want to happen. As you know, that's not what we do here. But I do think we all have to acknowledge that's at least a possible outcome at this point. The number of legislative days left in 2021 is growing perilously short. There's much left to do, and there's no clear plan yet on exactly how to do it. So even if it's not the likely outcome, it's a realistic one, and we are going to discuss that today. To take on this topic, I'm joined by my colleagues, whom you've met here before, Ron Dabrowski and Jen Acuna. So with that, let's dive in. Jen, my very first question is for you. Okay, so is there a real possibility we don't get a tax bill this year? What could cause it to fail, this thing that we've been talking about for so long, what things would have to happen for it to fail? I agree with you, John. I still think the possibility is lower, but it's not impossible that a bill fails to pass. And I think the biggest problem with the bill, the potential roadblock that we're seeing play out week after week after week, is that there isn't a unifying policy in the bill. There are a lot of expenditures that are included. There are a lot of things that folks want that folks do not want, but there isn't this one unifying must pass policy in the bill. And that's why it's hung up. There isn't agreement. There isn't consensus with, with respect to the top line number. There isn't consensus with respect to even how much of it needs to be paid for, how much revenue needs to be raised. And because of that, you see these competing priorities. We have progressives on one side, moderates on the other side, and they seem to have conflicting priorities. And because of that, I mean, that's why we've seen this, you know, back and forth and weeks go by and there's still, even today, to the end of October, we still don't have consensus on the most basic item, which is that top line spending amount. Let me ask you a question, Jen. You know, you were at the center of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and that was process was fluid to a certain extent, down to the wire. Things were not done until they were done. But it seems like there was a plan and it was a more linear process. So let me ask you, from the outside, it seemed like, you know, there were still things that were being negotiated to the last moment. How much was still up in the air in 2017 relative to what seems to be up in the air right now? Well, you know, in 2017, it was a little different, right? There was this one unifying policy, which was to move tax reform. And the one mantra that all of the members had was, we need to get the corporate rate down. So they were more willing to take trade-offs because they all agreed 
with respect to that one policy. And that was pre-vetted, I mean, beginning in February of 2017. So there was a pretty general consensus on the unifying policies by the summer of 2017. And then, you know, the details fell in. But by October, by late October, the bill was largely drafted. That's a fair point, that the corporate rate was really, at least on the business side, was the thing that everybody was chasing. And members could accept higher taxes, you know, on guilty or Section 965 and other things. Like They didn't love them, but they could come back to, but yes, the corporate rate. And as you say here, there were many things on the spending side of this bill that many members really desperately want, but not, as you say, the unifying thing that everybody can agree to as the thing they're trying to get. Fair point. You also had a number. $1.5 trillion was what you could spend and lose. And so they had a goal, right? We, we just don't have the goalpost set up yet. You know, our, our field is still being created. That's a good point, Ron. But, you know, they've got $1.75 trillion that is the deficit finance permitted amount under reconciliation instructions that they could do that, deficit finance the whole thing, and walk away without having to negotiate tax pay-fors at all. And they may still come back to that. But it seems like that dynamic, as you described, which is absolutely accurate in 2017, Republicans were absolutely going to use that $1.5 trillion of deficit instruction. The Democrats aren't going to do that. And I guess it's because Joe Manchin and some others have said, no, I'm not prepared to fully deficit finance this thing. And that makes it harder. Right. The, the reconciliation instruction was really just to start the negotiation. Yeah. You know, it, it's not framing right. anything, right? We don't have a top line number. We're not going to deficit spend to 1.75, apparently. At least not today, but, you know. Right, right, right. The current plan does not call for that. But but again, you know, to, to Jen's point, there, there's just no organizing principle of, you know, what are the rules? Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Ron, let me come ask you a question then, because President Biden's proposals have, they're very broad and they touch these sort of all corners of the tax code. But I, I feel like, and I think it's safe to say, that really more than anything, the international tax system, using this bill to really reform not only the U.S. international system, but the global system of international taxation was so essential to what he's proposed. So let me ask you this question. What happens if we don't get a tax bill this year? So the U.S. international rules remain unchanged. What are the consequences, not just here in the U.S., but globally, if that were to happen? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, one, I will argue at least that this year as a sort of framework is sort of misleading because, you know, there, there's next year and we have January and February and we'll probably touch on what that might look like. Otherwise, their domestic and their kind of global tax consequences to not doing anything on the international side. On the domestic side, it's relatively straightforward, right? Like if you keep that 21% rate and we have the 10.5% guilty effective tax rate, it's a pretty happy place, right? The tax system, I think most corporate taxpayers, there are quirks in the international system coming out of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, but it's workable and people were sort of fine to live with it. So not an unhappy place domestically, but you really just kind of go into chaos on the international side, right? We've been in negotiations with the OECD and the inclusive framework of 140 countries to hammer out an international tax deal. And if we have failure here in the U.S. in 2021, that's going to have serious reverberations throughout that inclusive framework process. So, you know, you look at the pillar one side, it's interesting, right? So the U.S. vision of a limited scope pillar one, we're going to go create market-based taxation that's going to hit the 100 largest companies or so. 
But that was part of a bigger framework where we're going to get rid of the DSTs, the digital taxes that were kind of popping up around the world. We're going to end sort of the targeting of U.S. companies. That was kind of a quid pro quo, right? We're going to do pillar one. We're going to get rid of DSTs. If the U.S. doesn't pass some form of tax reform, if its legislative process doesn't show signs of being able to work at all, the possibility of the U.S. passing pillar one legislation just gets much worse. I think the, the rest of the world was already probably skeptical on the U.S. passing pillar one stuff. That would just accelerate. What is interesting, though, you know, the, the whole DST aspect of it and the pop-up taxes, you know, the U.S. has kind of fought back through trade policy. So we imposed tariffs, we threatened tariffs, and that's actually gotten traction. So the U.S. just brokered a deal with five European countries that they would get rid of their DSTs and we won't go whack them with tariffs. That dynamic, I guess, will sort of stay in place going forward, and maybe there is sort of peace. And that, that's probably good enough for the U.S. tax system. The U.S. was never a huge fan of Pillar 1, but we really wanted to get rid of DSTs, and maybe tariff policy does it. On the Pillar 2 side of things, so the global minimum tax, it, it's probably a little more serious. We already know that the current guilty regime doesn't line up with the OECD's Pillar 2 income inclusion rules. So we would be kind of non-compliant. And we've already heard and seen that uh, the European Commission is going to come out with a directive. They've set a date of December 22nd. They're going to come out with Pillar 2 rules for the EU. France, which has the presidency of the EU Council for the first half of 2022, is pretty committed to passing that, to pushing that out in the first half of 2022. And so, you know, we can see Europe coming online with pillar two rules and the U.S. will be non-compliant and they're going to start imposing minimum tax on U.S. CFCs and potentially on U.S. multinationals directly, which would be quite remarkable. And do we break out the tariff hammer again to kind of defend ourselves? It'd be pretty messy pretty quickly to basically abandon the process. That all seems so unpalatable, right? That is hard to imagine. All the more reason why, gosh, they really want to find a way to do a deal on this build, if for no other reason, to avoid all the things you just described. But let me ask you one question. The Trump administration, which participated in these same conversations, perhaps not with the same gusto as the Biden administration, had taken the position that guilty as it currently exists should be an acceptable regime, right? That I think part of their argument was, well, maybe 10 and a half percent, but as a practical matter, when you look at all the computation of guilty is really a much higher rate and you should accept guilty as it is. That wasn't a slam dunk whether or not that had been accepted. But I guess what you're saying is we can't put the toothpaste back in the pillar two tube now that we've come out and said, no, 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 that's not good enough. We've got to change. We can't go back and try and convince the rest of the world that current law guilty is going to be acceptable. Would you say that's fair? Well, it does get interesting, right? The U.S. sort of drove the rate to 15 percent in the pillar two process. The Biden administration's opening bid was, hey, let's go 21. And the rest of the world was like, no thanks, but 15 sort of stuck. When the Pillar 2 process started, the thought for a minimum tax was more like 10%, more like minimum. And again, looking like current guilty. So as the process evolves and if the U.S. doesn't carry the same sort of heft because they don't seem to be involved, does what the EU does unilaterally start to change? And that could well be. The U.S. has sort of separate issues. One sort of the rate, and is it 15 or 10? But the other is the U.S. guilty rules amalgamate income. We, we combine 
um, gains and losses from CFCs. We allow cross-crediting of taxes, which drives the rest of the world crazy. You know, they don't trust our foreign tax credit rules. And that, if current law remains in place, remains an issue. So even at 10.5% guilty, this sharing of losses and cross-crediting across jurisdictions is still not necessarily compliant with the rest of the world's view of Pillar 2. So two things in play, just sort of the general mechanics and then the rate and and where they play out isn't quite clear. One last follow-up question is both international and domestic, really. You know, before the results of the Georgia Senate races were known, when in fact, actually, we originally, if you recall, back in November, it appeared that Republicans had retained control of the Senate. We went through a big exercise here of saying, okay, look, divided Congress, what is the Biden administration going to do to flex its regulatory muscles to change whether either international guidance issued by Trump Treasury or some of the domestic rules? That all got put aside once it became clear that the Democrats had taken control of the Senate. We knew that the Treasury was all in on legislative changes. If they could not get a bill through this year, and now it would appear we're in deadlock starting next year, are there pieces of regulatory guidance, to start with the international side, that you would imagine that the Biden Treasury would come back to and say, fine, Congress, you couldn't change the law, the statute, so we're going to change the regulatory guidance. Any obvious places that they would go look? Yeah, certainly the the guilty high tax exception is is the first one, you know, sort of a controversial regulatory move by the Trump administration. And, you know, if you wanted to sort of increase the effective tax rate on U.S. multinationals from, from the Biden administration's perspective, that would certainly be one place to start. The second is more sort of defensive, and Trump administration had proposed foreign tax credit regulations that would really tighten and limit the extent to which the U.S. would allow a credit for foreign taxes. So I'm really changing the definition in a lot of ways of what's a creditable foreign tax, and partly targeting the DSTs, unilateral taxes that are popping up. The Biden administration was already you know, on record, and, and we were expecting it to show up. Anytime final regulations or further movement in that space, that would doubly happen if the legislative process falls apart. And you might even see further expansion of regulatory action in that area, just trying to limit the foreign tax credit, preventing or punishing sort of bad behavior outside the U.S. It's interesting where the regulatory dynamic sort of picks up here and how it plays out if nothing gets done on the legislative side. But yeah, I think the legislative story is going to linger on for a little bit here, though. Mm -hmm. And I guess on the domestic side, things that they might look at would involve things in the estate planning world, 199 Cap A, opportunity zones, like other areas of regulatory guidance that they could come back to on the domestic side, too. Okay. Well, that's a parade of horribles. (laughs) Thanks, Ron. So, Jen, let me come back to a different question for you. Well, let's just change our parameters of our conversation here for just a second. I know we're premising this on the idea that they don't pass a bill at all. However, one of the things they are talking about, at least possibly, is delaying the effective date. So they pass a law change, but they delay the effective date on the international changes. So you heard all the things that Ron said. Do all those things still happen if we get a statutory change, but with a delayed effective date of a year or two years? How does that play out, do you think, Jen? It kind of solves the problem, right, with the OECD effort, at least, because at least there is a show of confidence that the U.S. was able to implement Pillar 2, the changes to the international system to make it compliant with Pillar 2. Of course, that wouldn't include Pillar 1, but, you know, it would be some legislative movement. And the U.S. is always the harder nut to crack. Our systems are a lot harder to move because of the way our system of government works. 
So I think it actually helps. But I think on the domestic side, you know, having that delayed effective date for international changes poses a lot of issues, a lot of problems potentially with respect to the revenue and with respect to the political risk of having a delayed effective date is that it just never kicks in. And I think that political risk would be the thing that really concerns folks overseas. I know that I'd be worried about this turning into an extender from their perspective, you know, not from our perspective. But I think that's the real risk. I mean, then we're just looking at political risk. Next year is an election year. If we have divided Congress after the midterm elections, what is the likelihood that the system ever kicks in? It's a great question because you think about it. The rationale, I think, for the delay is the U.S. should not go first, right? We should not get in front of our trading partners on tax policy in adopting these international changes. So let's wait, right? And let's make the rest of the world prove that they can deliver on, say, Pillar 2 as well. But here's my question. I don't know the answer to this. When would Congress be satisfied that the rest of the world had done enough? Is that every single country that's signed on to the OECD agreement has implemented it? Because if that's the threshold, that might be never. Is it half? Is it a third? Is it the key ones? You know, France, UK, Germany. I don't know. Right. So does that set us up for the ability for Congress to delay forever, especially if we get a change in control in the House or the Senate or both in the midterms? I don't know. So, Ron, your, any of your thoughts? Like, well, How would the rest of the world view that? Would they say, fine, you enacted it, but it's not effective and we're not sure it'll ever be effective? If we come out of December and the EU has put out a directive implementing a pillar two global minimum tax, that's a pretty big deal. Like whatever, like, like you'd be like, oh, well, China hasn't. I'm not sure that really drives much. If the EU starts to move first on pillar two, the wind sort of out of the sails, you can delay it. But if it's legislation that passed and is on the books, you'd need to pass legislation to undo that. And I would think the rest of the world kind of forges ahead if there is something that is passed even with a delayed effective date. Then again, they might forge ahead no matter what. Uh, <laughs> right. F fair point. And you're right. Maybe a delayed effective date, that's enough, right? The U.S. actually changed the statute and eventually, you know, they'll come to the senses and it'll be in effect. Fair point. Okay. Two more questions for you. And these are for both of you. So go ahead and answer these. We haven't really discussed this much because we've been so focused on 2021, but let's just say we don't get a bill enacted this year. So maybe Jen, I'll start with you. If it doesn't happen this year, but maybe they're close, but they run out of time in 2021, is 2022 a possibility that they could come back and try and do this in 2022? Yeah, I mean, it is a possibility. I was just recently reminded that Obamacare, a portion of it was passed through reconciliation during an election year. So it is possible there is some precedent and I think that there would just be so much pressure to accomplish something to get a big policy win that there would be a ton of pressure building up at the beginning of next year to get something done. But it's risky, right? And they're going to have to weigh those risks, the risk of not moving big policy changes versus the risk of doing nothing in the midterms. And I think at the end of the day, the risk of doing nothing is a lot greater and puts Democrats in more peril during the midterms than the risk of moving big policy during an election year. 2022 could be alive and well. Let me just make one observation, though. You mentioned the Obamacare one, which is absolutely true, that it was passed in, I think, what was it, 2010, which, of course, was a midterm election year. But I'm not sure what the history lesson is from that, because then, as you recall, I think Republicans turned 63 seats in the House that year. That's so right. it has been done. But is the lesson from that, don't do that again. We don't know. We don't know. 
Jen is spot on. And maybe, you know, we're in the spirit of Halloween here, but our zombie legislative process just isn't going to stop at year end. The lesson of Obamacare was there's no plan B. There's nothing else to do. So if you're the Democratic caucus in both the House and the Senate, passing a something, whatever it looks like, is the only thing. I mean, we have the bipartisan plan that's out there too. And I don't, I'm not quite sure what the dynamics of reconciliation and bipartisan bill are at this point, but something's got to pass. It, it is certain failure, I think, for the Democrats to do nothing. And so if you get into 2022, you know, it's not like they have anything to run on. So they better go back and pass a something. And I think that's going to drive the process. This zombie will not stop at 1231. It's going to march right into 2022 and seek something that they can call victory. That's a good point, though, Ron. Do you think just passing the bipartisan bill, could that be enough? Right. They did the $1.9 trillion bill back in March, ARPA. They had another 1.2 nominally in the bipartisan bill. That's 3.1. It's a pretty good year in terms of passing legislation. But do you think at this point that's not going to be enough? Anybody think that they would just do that and declare victory and call it a day? Once you pass that, I think the reconciliation bill is dead. Yeah, I, I think Speaker Pelosi has already said reconciliation is going first, then we'll do the bipartisan bill. I think everybody has a pretty clear sense that we've termed it sort of the hostage. The, the bipartisan bill needs to be held hostage and held hostage to the end. I don't see a yeah. one and done just pass bipartisan bill and call it a day. House progressives have been pretty clear that they will not support the bipartisan infrastructure deal until there's movement on reconciliation. And that isn't an insignificant number of members. They can only afford to lose three in the House, so that pretty much answers the question. I don't think they can move by the bipartisan infrastructure deal without reconciliation. Yeah, we'll see. If it's the only thing that can move, then maybe they change their tune. And if, you know, we get the results of the Virginia governor race influence the outcome one way or the other, we don't know. We'll have to see how that goes. Okay. One last question then. We talked about a bunch of things. We talked about international a lot, which is really important for the reasons we said. But what are the other consequences of a bill not happening this year? Are there other things we're not thinking about that not passing a bill there would affect these other tax items that maybe aren't in the conversation right now? Well, the big one that comes to mind is SALT. These were campaign issues, repealing the SALT cap, repealing the Trump tax cuts. Failure to do that, I mean, it would have a pretty significant impact. You wouldn't be providing SALT relief to a lot of those high-tax blue states. That would be a big deal. We have 174 that was included in the House Ways and Means Bill. We'd have to turn to extenders right away. We have 163J coming up. There would be a nice potential for a big extenders package. When? As we know, Congress isn't particularly motivated by extenders' deadlines anymore. So I would think that next year would probably be when Congress sets its sights on extenders. So December 2022, post-election lame duck session. Is that what you're thinking, Jen? Yep. Okay. So we sweat it out all year. Anything else, Ron? We'll start talking about 2023 soon, and we'll have bonus starting to phase down. Yeah. We'll be in sight at least for some of the TCJA automatic rate increases after 2025. You know, if we don't have legislation that starts to fix some stuff, it just begs the question of what can get done and what's the vehicle to do that. We have taxpayer adverse changes that are coming down the pipe, you know, as part of the pay for for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And so we're going to start staring at those pretty quickly. 
Yeah, the whole individual side of the code, the end of 2025. And in a funny way, you mentioned salt, Jen. We're just one year closer to the salt cap expiring. So, you know, that's always the fallback position, I guess, is that eventually the salt cap itself will expire at the end of 2025. Well, that's all we have time for today, I'm afraid. Thank you, Ron and Jen. I'll keep my closing here short. We've gone long enough already. I just want to end where we started. And I wanted to reemphasize, we are not saying there will be no tax bill. And we are not saying there should not be a tax bill. We are just saying there might not be a tax bill. And that's not really news. No legislation is ever a certain thing. But it's clear, I think, that things have proven to be much harder than many would have predicted back in January. Raising taxes is hard. And the laws of gravity apply to everybody, no matter whether you have a D or an R next to your name. So here we are. The reconciliation bill is stuck for now. Daylight is fading fast and there is no obvious way out. But that doesn't mean there are absolutely no ways out of this, but all the ways out seem to involve answering at least one of these tough questions. For starters, can Democrats find revenue offsets that simultaneously meet the many complex and seemingly contradictory requirements of House and Senate Democrats? Or will any such revenue raisers be sufficient in terms of raising revenue to satisfy the budgetary mandates of budget reconciliation. Or how about this one? Can new and untested revenue ideas dropped into the late innings of this process get the support of nearly all Democrats as would be needed? Or can other Democrats perhaps convince Senator Sinema and others to relent on their no rate increase stance, thereby putting much of the Ways and Means plan back in play? Can they convince inflation hawk Democrats to simply accept the $1.75 trillion of deficit financing provided for in the reconciliation instructions as perhaps the path of least resistance in approving a bill? Well, those are just a few questions, and I don't know the answer to any of those right now. Nobody does. Only time, the coming days and weeks, can provide these answers. So stay tuned. We are very near the crescendo in this year-long process, and you've come this far. Don't look away now. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.